My name is Jason Alexander, the star of Bedtime Stories of the Ingleside Inn, a brand new scripted comedy podcast in which I play Palm Springs hotelier Mel Haber, who in the 1970s turned the rundown Ingleside Inn into the best-kept secret getaway for Hollywood's elite thieves and mobsters. The series also stars Brian Jordan Alvarez, Michael McKean, Richard Kind, Lance Bass, and more. You can find Bedtime Stories of the Ingleside Inn on SiriusXM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. This is This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. If you flipped on the television Wednesday morning, you were treated to wall-to-wall coverage of an active shooter shutting down the downtown Atlanta area. The 24-year-old was with his mother at a medical facility, waiting for some sort of appointment, when he took out a gun and opened fire. He killed one and injured four. All five of the victims were women and his mother was not amongst the victims and was initially reported. So why is it important to talk about this story? Because this is our lives now. Every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. At the time of this reporting, there has been now 190, 190 mass shootings in America. And today is only the 123rd day of the year. I mean, are we awake yet? I think that the unspoken assumption is that this can't happen to me. But with a mass shooting every day, the truth is the chances are great. I shudder to say it, but but the, the truth is, in a real sense, is only a matter of time. So FYI, common sense gun reform does not mean Democrats are coming for your guns. It's just not true. And don't tell me that nothing can be done. 87%, think about that, 87%, a full 87% of the population is in favor of common sense gun reform. So you're telling me that 13% of the population is responsible for putting the rest of us through this mass shooting nightmare? No, we are being held hostage by the minority because of the Second Amendment and how it's been interpreted by the likes of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Be vindicated in gun rights. You know, when, Tom, when Thomas joined the court in 1991, the court had never held that there was an individual right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. He started writing dissenting opinions uh, in the late 90s saying there is an an individual right to bear arms. And in 2008, Justice Scalia's famous opinion for the court in the Heller case said there is is an individual right. And this term, it's very likely that they're going to expand the individual right, contract the right of states to pass gun laws. Thomas wrote in his opinion last year, and I quote, the people have a right not just to keep, but to bear arms, including in public places for self-defense. He ignores that tricky bit about well-regulated militia. I mean, while most of us were losing our minds over the disastrous Dobbs decision, the court was gearing up to deliver another blow. Last June, the court voted with conservatives 6-3 to that New York Sullivan Act was unconstitutional. 
and that the ability to carry a pistol in public was a constitutional right under the Second Amendment. So, no more need for an application. Just go out and buy a gun, and fuck it, there you go. So, um, as I said in the Mullah, it's always about the Supreme Court, right? I mean, this is something conservatives have gotten for the longest time. They play the long game. They knew this from the beginning. It's about getting the court. That's where the power is. They put six Catholics on the court. But overturning that one law has created turmoil in the lower courts, and now every gun law is up for grabs. It opened the door to a wave of legal challenges from gun rights activists who saw an opportunity to undo laws on everything from age limits to AR-15s. I mean, here's a terrifying statistic. AR-15s now make up a staggering 25% of all new gun sales. In Australia, we, we had guns, right? Right up until 1996. And in 1996, Australia had the biggest massacre on earth. Still hasn't been beaten. And now, after that, they banned the guns. Now, in the 10 years before Port Arthur, there was 10 massacres. Since the gun ban in 1996, there hasn't been a single massacre since. I don't know how or why this happened. Uh, maybe it was a coincidence, right? So what have we learned? Fewer gun laws do not make us safer. More guns do not make us safer. And as the 2024 election begins to take shape, we have to remember to keep the need for gun safety laws front and center. And we also need to be asking our candidates how they plan to resolve our Supreme Court issues. Because we have big problems, my friends, really big problems. Chief Justice John Roberts refused to talk with Congress when invited this week. So without checks and balances, the problems aren't going away. The, the court is a very divisive um, entity now, institution right now. Uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, to me, is illegitimate the way they didn't take up Garland and on, on the saying it's an election year. And then they, of course, put in Coney Barrett like eight days before the election. But, and, and then of course, Dobbs and abortion, you know. So, but it's more than that. It's gonna be, it's on and on and on, right? And then a follow-up on the E. Jean Carroll rape and defamation trial. Trump has finally let it be known that he won't be showing up in court to say the horrible things in public that he's been saying on his Truth Social platform. Now, I'm sure that the jury was relieved about that. Attorneys for Eugene Carroll, the woman accusing the former president of rape in a New York civil trial, called two witnesses today to bolster her recent testimony. Lisa Birnbach, a longtime friend of Carroll, described the phone call she says she received moments after the alleged attack in the mid-1990s. And how Carroll was, quote, breathless, hyperventilating, and emotional. The second witness, Jessica Leeds, claimed the former president sexually assaulted her on an airplane in the late 1970s. The former president has denied wrongdoing in both accounts. So on Tuesday, journalist and author Lisa Birnbach spoke on behalf of Carol, saying that Carol had called her moments after the attack in the spring of 1996, a detail Carol herself couldn't remember. And while on the phone, Birnbach had to tell a shocked and terrified Carol that she'd been raped and needed to go to the police. 
Carroll at that time was unable to do as Birnbach suggested. Not because Trump wasn't guilty, but because as she said, she was one of the silent generation of women who felt safer not talking about it. Carol began to come to terms with the rape only after the Access Hollywood tape came out and was inspired to write about it when the hashtag MeToo movement started to nail big fish like Harvey Weinstein. Now I'm not saying that he's guilty. No, God forbid. What I'm saying though is that she should not be ignored. Everybody's got a perfect right not to believe me because it happened so long ago. But I'm not bothered by being called a liar. But what I find interesting is the stories of those other, what, 14, 15 women? They're all the same. And none of them have colluded with each other. So this is, this is an MO of this man. A second witness, Jessica Leeds, spoke about being attacked by Trump on a plane without her consent. Obviously, there's a pattern here. Leeds, a stockbroker that was randomly seated next to Trump, said it was as if he had 40 zillion hands as he tried to kiss her neck and stick his hands up a skirt. In her testimony, Leeds said she met Trump some years later and he pulled her aside to say, I remember you, you're the C-word who sat next to me on the plane. Well, stay classy there, Donald, if it's true. I mean, stay classy. And so was it smart for Donald Trump's legal team to use big, I mean, and he's physically a big guy, Joe Jacopina, using a big male lawyer to cross-examine a woman when it comes to rape. Now, it wasn't like he was physically imposing upon her, but he clearly was trying to poke holes in her credibility and her testimony. Like Trump, his lawyer, Joe Tacopinas, is a ham-fisted moron who had no clue how to talk to women, let alone cross-examine them. He brutally demeaned both witnesses, but reportedly lost the jury in the process. Hey, moron, that's not the way that you handle a jury. It's not the way that you handle a witness. You think you're going to come in there like a fucking bovine and bullshit people and intimidate them? Fuck no. These witnesses, because they're telling the truth, have also been amazingly prepared for their moment in the courtroom by the lawyers for E. Jean Carroll. You could tell because they are ready in the in the counterpunching. First of all, they're smarter than the lawyers that are cross-examining them. Let me just put that on the record. E. Jean Carroll, Lisa Birnbach, the famous um, author who testified in support of E. Jean Carroll. We're gonna hear from Carol Martin, a well-respected longtime newscaster here in New York. They're just smarter than the other people and they're telling the truth. They have an added combination. Or as I have joked on a hot take, it's it's you know the magic trick where the the woman is sawed in half by the magician we are watching women sawing the defense in half in re- in real time all of them well then on wednesday a former writer for people magazine natasha stoinoff told the jury that she was at mar-a-lago in 2005 to write a piece on donald and melania's first anniversary when trump asked to show her a room in the estate and i quote I'm looking around, I'm thinking, wow, really nice room, wondering what he wants to show me, and I hear the door shut. And then of course he attacked her. According to her, she said that she tried to shove him away and that she said no words. I couldn't, I tried, I was just flustered and shocked, Stoinoff told the jury. So here is some of, again, you may recall this, you may remember this, you remember where you were 
when you heard that this was how Donald Trump was caught speaking on a microphone. But today, it is something very different. It's being offered as evidence in a case about defamation and alleged sexual assault. Here's some of what the jurors heard today. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just I don't even know it. And when you're a star, they let you do it. After the Access Hollywood tape came out, she too came forward. And wouldn't you know it, Trump denied her claims as well. And of course, then disparaged her too. More witnesses for Carol will be on the stand this week, and Trump will appear via his deposition. Now, the trial is expected to end late this week or early next week, so who knows? It could even go longer than that, depending on the number of witnesses that elect to come forward. White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax. So we're still not precisely sure how George Floyd died. Very few unarmed black men are killed by white cops these days. Where's George Floyd when you need him? The only job training program this administration has gotten behind in two and a half years is getting black people to sell more weed in the cities. Ilhan Omar is living proof that the way we practice immigration has become dangerous to this country. So we have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided. As more text messages eke out from the Fox Dominion lawsuit, it seems that fucker Carlson was as vile and racist in his personal life as he was on air. There were holes in the story of how and why Carlson was fired. And now some of those questions are being answered. Fucker's own words are the problem. Define it for me. The New York Times concluded, after analyzing over a thousand episodes of his program, that Tucker, quote, constructed what may be the most racist show in the history of cable news. And I think that judgment was likely correct. Carlson said that more than any other show he promoted colorblind equality against racism. Well, guess what, fucker? I call bullshit. I mean, Tucker is so racist that he realized, I mean, almost too late, that he couldn't go before a jury or have more of his incendiary text published. The jury that was formed in the Dominion defamation trial against Fox was by and large made up of minorities. Now, I wish they'd gotten a chance to hear this. So Tex Tucker texted that he had recently watched a video in which, quote, a group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living S out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. Did you catch that? Not how white men fight. Okay, he continues. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then something deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him Personally, if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. Tucker promoted violence and racism. He pushed the great replacement theory, said shit like immigrants make the country dirtier. Even the Daily Stormer said five years ago that Carlson was the far right's greatest ally and his show was basically parroting their worldview on prime time. I mean, not much has changed. But Carlson is just a symptom of how sick Fox really is. And his rhetoric is quickly being mimicked by his heir apparent, Jesse Waters. Family Feud, it's a good show. 
Except some of the answers by these family members are ridiculous. <laughs> but that's what makes it so funny. And then Steve Harvey's reaction well, to these cool. crazy family members is gold. Yeah. When I get fired from Fox, I want to host Family Feud. <laughs> so file this under. Guess who's going to jail? There have been tons of ex-military caught up in the January 6th shenanigans, but federal prosecutors have charged a former FBI agent with illegally entering the Capitol on the 6th and calling police officers Nazis, as he encouraged a mob of Trump loyalists to kill them. Former agent Jared L. Wise was arrested on Monday and joins Thomas Caldwell, an Oath Keeper who once worked for the FBI, and Mark Ibrahim, an active duty agent for the DEA, as law enforcement who became insurrectionists for Trump. Well, here's a fun fact. Wise was recruited and trained by Eric Prince and worked for Project Veritas to inflate trade unions, Democratic congressional campaigns, teachers unions, and other targets. Prince, brother of Trump's mega-wealthy education secretary, Betty DeVos, has not so secretly been behind right-wing black ops for years. And if there's anyone I'd like to see dragged before a January 6th jury, well, it's fucking Prince. Standing before you today, I am the only candidate who can make this promise. I will prevent World War III, I promise. It's not gonna be a World War And one last thing. Wednesday, Russia claimed that a double drone strike on the Kremlin was an assassination attempt on Vladimir Putin by Ukraine. Zelensky in particular. Well, it wasn't. Now, the Kremlin is looking for a reason to kill Zelensky and decapitate Ukrainian forces. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says his country is focused on liberating its own territory, not attacking other nations. Kremlin says it considers the attack a pre-planned terrorist attack, reserves the right to retaliate. The U.S. said it was unable to confirm the authenticity of Russia's claim. The United Nations is calling on all sides to not escalate the conflict. Propaganda opportunities like a fake drone strike don't come along every day. They need to blame Ukraine because they have no other way to muster domestic support. And you can't win a war without troops. But the timing is a little weird. Zelensky is headed to the Netherlands and is scheduled to speak in The Hague on Thursday about Putin's well-documented war crimes. So add another crime to the list. But Russia is looking as weak and fractured as their once fearsome leader. Someone needs to tell Putin that he's lost... Fifteen years ago, Tommy John set out to make every butt in the world as comfortable as possible. Time to celebrate and grab your own pair of life-changing, comfy Tommy John undies. When you wear Tommy John, you're so much more comfortable. You can do everything better. So if I sound better, it's because I'm in my Tommy Johns right now. Tommy John underwear moves with you, thanks to breathable, lightweight, moisture-wick fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, people like me love Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics who say Tommy John has the most comfortable box of briefs ever. There's no downside. Buy one pair and you'll never want to wear any other underwear again. Tommy John's anniversary sale is a perfect time to grab some new Tommy John loungewear jogger, which I also love because it's comfy to wear. 
Plus, everything's backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. So right now, get 20% off your first order, literally right now at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. That's 20% off at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. See site for details. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show, my good friend Norm Eisen. There's pretty much nothing going on in politics today that Eisen doesn't have an educated opinion about. Eisen is a CNN legal analyst and the founder and executive chair of States United Democracy Center, a nonpartisan organization advancing free, fair, and secure elections. Eisen served as special counsel to President Barack Obama on ethics, and in that role, he was dubbed Mr. No and the Ethics Czar because he was well known for his tough anti-corruption approach to governance. Man, do we really need that now, especially with what's going on in the Supreme Court? Eisen is also active with the Brookings Institute and other groups working to expose the myriad of ways Trump and others like him broke the law and attempted to overturn the 2020 election. Eisen is also working with the Brookings Institute to help Ukraine recover and thrive once Putin's war has finally ended. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Norm, as always, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. So jumping right into it, it's looking like the E. Jean Carroll rape and defamation case is going to wrap up soon. And by most accounts, it's not going well for Trump. First, what's your take on the case overall? And second, what happens to Trump if he is in fact found guilty in this case? My take on the case overall, Michael, is um, that it's always challenging when um when uh a plaintiff um who's been terribly wronged as in my view e jean carroll was uh brings a civil case uh to um seek damages uh for redress uh against an assaulter as in my view donald trump was why is that a challenge even though it's clear I don't think there's <laughs> there's anybody who uh, uh, believes Trump and disbelieves E. Jean Carroll at this point. That's because juries generally um, in these cases, and I've worked on them as an attorney, um, juries generally want um, eyewitness uh, proof or testimony or evidence that the victim immediately went to the police um, and, and some kind of uh, uh, tangible proof. And you don't have an eyewitness to the assault here and you don't have a police report, but, but that's a challenge. It's a challenge that can be overcome. And I think Eugene Carroll and her lawyers have done that. She was credible and believable on the stand. Cross-examination can often be part of the issue. She held up strong on cross-examination. Um, and the, the saving grace in this case is that 
she did report it to contemporaneous witnesses, to two contemporaneous witnesses. And, um, and of course, there's also corroborating evidence that Trump has a pattern of this behavior. I think if she had not reported it uh, to her friends, we heard, um, we heard from this week immediately, even with the corroborating evidence and her uh, truthful and outstanding testimony, uh, you know, it's a tough hurdle for a jury. I think that they have, um, and that's surprising to people who haven't, um, who haven't done this. And I think, um, uh, have seen how compelling and truthful she is. All of that being said, um, I, I think that she's going to win this case. And if, Trump would be found liable, not guilty. A guilt finding is in a criminal case. If Trump is found liable, you know, uh, very interesting to me. Um, when I was uh, doing the impeachment, I learned that uh, a, a vast majority of the American people in polls believe that Trump should be removed from office if he committed sexual assault. It's so fundamental to the uh, expectations that we have of a uh, of a uh, someone who is or wants to be president that they um, uh, not do that uh, that it's disqualifying. So I think if he's found liable here, irrespective of the amount of money, uh, and he could look be could be looking at a substantial price tag for the damages as well. But irrespective of the amount of money, if he's found liable, um, I think it's going to be a big problem for him and his continuing uh, aspiration for the White House. So let me, let me just begin by saying, I've been asked by no less than a thousand people, what do you think? Do you think that he did it? You know, you would know. No, first of all, when this when this scenario allegedly took place in the 1990s, I had just finished law school and I was working downtown doing medical malpractice and tort litigation, right? I had no, I had no connection to Donald Trump at all uh, and so on. And I do just want to also say that Trump has continuously stated that and has denied all wrongdoing. Now, Putting all that aside, I don't discount what E. Jean Carroll says, but as I tell everybody, I wasn't there for it, and whatever this jury is going to decide, I stand by that decision. Again, you know, if unless I'm there and unless I personally know about it, I hate to opine on something, but I'll tell you where Trump is thinking about this one with his, um, I like the lady outside the courthouse screaming, tacky, tack a penis, right? Um, this case is a civil case. I don't want people to get mistaken in thinking that this is criminal. This is a civil battery and defamation trial that's brought against Trump, right, for, as we said, the sexual assault, the, the rape of, um, the alleged rape of E. Jean Carroll. Now, one of the other issues that, you know, that comes up, and I agree with you, they're putting on several individuals who are testifying to firsthand knowledge. And I know that, you know, there's a whole slew of people. There's a, um, 
there's a, a Carol Martin, there's a Dr. Ashley Humphreys, there's a former uh, L editor in chief, um, Robbie Myers. Uh, there was, I mean, there's a series of people that they have put forth that corroborate the statements that are ma being made by, you know, E. Jean Carroll in this case. Um, I also think that Takapina made a terrible, terrible move by beating up or trying to beat up on E. Jean Carroll. The problem with Takapina and the problem with so many of the lawyers that are now surrounding Donald, they're not thinking clearly. They're playing to a party of one. And that's always the problem when you're trying to do, in this case, the boss's you know, bidding, and you think that by going at her, disparaging her, denigrating her, this is a woman who has held in a situation for over 30 years. And you think that in front of a jury, it's a smart move to denigrate, disparage her, and try to beat her up on the stand? Uh, Trump is the recipient of bad lawyering. And tech, there is uh, a way uh, to... defend this case and to defend it vigorously. Um, I would never have let a man and particularly a bully like Takapina um, do the cross-examination. I would have, uh, if I were advising Trump, which uh, I had a brief interregnum of doing. Have we ever talked about that? No, we haven't. Go for it. My listeners <laughs> well, need to know, Norm. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come around to it. I'm gonna come around to it. Um, if I were advising Trump, I would have said um, to retain the most experienced um, female defense lawyer, um, because that that image of Takapina um, bullying her uh, was. Um, Almost like uh, it had echoes. The way he, he was treating her had echoes uh, of the accusations uh, she was making, not because he was being sexually inappropriate in any way, but just that image of, um, you know, this individual, this man with a very bullying demeanor attempting to push her around on her testimony. Uh, it has it has an echo that you don't want in front of a jury. He also had no theory of his cross examination. Michael, he was all over the place, like you know, nitpicking unconnectedly at particular statements. What is Trump's argument that this did not happen? And how does the how does the um, how does the uh, theory of the case reinforce that or is the argument tacitly that's one way to defend the case another way is to say um uh it, it, it is to point to the ways that um to challenge the ways that Eugene says it affected her i want to be very clear i believe her i'm sure this happened 
and it happened as she said. But, uh, you know, uh, you can believe that and you can also think that the lawyering here was lousy. Trump himself is to blame because he's uh, driven away the people who um, can provide him with good counsel. Who would want to work for him, among other things, after they saw what he did to you? Now, I had my own... Uh, I had my own brief experience because every presidential cycle, Michael, I do it as a matter of patriotism. I agree to advise both the Democratic presidential candidate and the Republican presidential candidate on integrity, transparency, compliance, ethics, and how to stay out of trouble. It's one of my proudest accomplishments. I did that as the ethics czar. For uh, for President Obama, uh, and uh, he writes in his uh, book, his memoir of his presidency, that um, one of his great accomplishments was he did not have a single indictment or prosecution. Uh, no, the only modern presidency, uh, not even a special counsel, no one in his administration was indicted, prosecuted, much less pardoned. And so I advised the Trump transition. I told them exactly what they had to do. I even wrote an op-ed, Michael, um, with uh, Steve Bannon's. I was Obama's ethics czar. Uh, Steve Bannon has an ethics czar, too, had uh, Peter Schweitzer over at Breitbart, who wrote Clinton Cash. Schweitzer and I wrote an op-ed together. The Trump ethics plan, as we would say in Yiddish, nechtigatug, a night that is day. It's a complete, it's it's completely illogical. But I thought, okay, maybe you know, he's won the election. Maybe there's some hope. Of course, uh, it was not meant to be. I could see uh, the direction things were headed. Uh, the uh, transition no longer wanted to use me. And then, uh, and then, of course, I denounced him for the emoluments, and the rest is history. So um, you got a bonus answer in response to that question. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, there was also one of the other um, people who testified was this journalist uh, by the name of Natasha Stoinoff. You know, yes. when, when, you, when you were talking about um, Takapina and the way that he was sort of behaving and looming over, for example, E. Jean Carroll, and you were saying that it was very reminiscent of, you know, the story in terms of how uh, Trump allegedly behaved with uh, E. Jean Carroll. You know who I thought you were actually going to say? It reminds me more of the way that he behaved in the debate with Hillary Rodham Clinton when, remember, he was standing huh, behind her and he was sort of yeah, looming over. That to yes. me is, was what I thought you were going to go. But yeah, that's this, a very this good analogy. That's a gr good analogy also. Yeah, so when they had Natasha Stornoff, this journalist, uh, she also accused Trump of sexually assaulting her. And it's a really weird sort of story because in so many ways, it kind of mirrors what E. Jean was saying. I'll tell you who else it also mirrors. It also mirrors... The Stormy Daniels story. So all of a sudden he tells Stoinoff, right, um, hey, you want to see some of the suites in the estate, 
right? So I suspect he's obviously at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, he closes the door, according to her, um, you know, tells her we're going to have an affair. You know, don't forget what Marla said, best sex that she ever had. Um, you know, and, you know, it's very similar, if not eerily identical to the way that uh, Stormy tells her story that she was there and he went into the bathroom. He comes out, you know, he pushes her against the wall. In this case, it was the bed, right? Starts kissing her. Um, you know, she tries to get him off. I mean, you know, this is really sick shit. And you know what? If in fact that he is found guilty, the only bad thing is that this is only civil. And that what he'll do is he'll go ahead and he'll send out a hundred more emails to all of his MAGA supporters, these maggot morons who will turn around and they will keep parting with their hard earned money, right? Or their social security or Medicare, Medicaid checks, and they will be sending it to him in order to pay off this civil, you know, fine. And then Trump will continue to say, I don't care what the jury found. It was New York. They hate me there. They don't love Trump. It's not true. I paid what I had to pay. And it's, you know, he's not going to take accountability or responsibility. No. But, but I want to ask you this in furtherance. Do you believe that Trump not showing up for the trial will have any bearing on how the verdict in this case goes? Uh, I do. I think that me too. Juries, juries like to uh, hear from uh, the uh, parties to a case. And you have E. Jean Carroll, who's there. You had E. Jean Carroll's lawyers who put in the video testimony of Trump. I don't think that um, those jurors are going to ignore his absence. It's not going to be the strongest dispositive factor, uh, but it hurts him. Um, he's counting on um, the um, Teflon that he has uh, donned all these decades to continue to keep him out of trouble. But it's not working. He got charged by the Man Manhattan DA. I think he's going to uh, be held liable by this jury. I think the Georgia DA, Bonnie Willis in Atlanta, is coming after him next for the uh, attempted coup of 2020. I view the Manhattan case as the uh, election interference of 2016, the gateway drug. He's getting civil. He's going to get held civilly liable here. The New York AG, Tish James, Michael, uh, mm -hmm. she's going to come after him civilly with uh, what I think of as almost a corporate death penalty case, because if she wins her case and gets the relief she seeks for his frauds, she's saying, in effect, that uh, he and his family cannot continue to do business in the Trump organization. They're going to have to, the effect of the case is going to be either shut down the business or sell and exit. Well, if she gets everything, everything she wants. Yeah, but no, uh, if in fact that he's found guilty in the New York AG case, uh, she has the ability to revoke the, um, the license uh, to operate and to conduct business uh, of the Trump Organization, Trump Corporation, which technically, as you started off your answer with, it's a death, it's a, it's a death sentence to the Trump Organization, not to mention financially, 
Um, she's seeking that minimum of 250, minimum of 250 million. Yeah, but she's not going to pull the license and then all these properties just are going to be, you know, evacuated and shut down. Trump Tower, the Trump International Hotel, and the rest of the properties. Uh, what's going to happen is it will force the family to negotiate an exit, a sale, under not very favorable terms, um, and um, pay the damages. The business can't function. I agree with you. The business can't function for precisely the reason you say. And others, some of the relief that she wants precludes Trump and his children from doing various forms of business for years or for life, okay, as a part, if she gets the relief she wants. So they can't, if they can't take loans, if they can't do real estate transactions, if they can't issue uh, certain securities, um, they can't do business. So the effect is going to be, I don't think they're going to leave the businesses empty. The effect is going to be to force a sale, maybe a fire sale or individual sales of these things, or go into bankruptcy and through the bankruptcy process. So, you know, Trump is finally facing accountability, Michael, and you're a big part of that. You've been uh, so outspoken and, and such an important witness to investigators, including me. I, I began it. My first um, case against Trump was the very first case brought for the emoluments, the constitutionally prohibited payments that Trump was getting from foreign governments as soon as he was president. I had a runner stationed to watch the TV and file the first case as soon as Trump finished his oath of office. I wanted to be first. Uh, and then, of course, the impeachment was the, the first uh, trial of Trump for high crimes and misdemeanors, but it was a criminal trial of Trump. Did we succeed? No. But we established the framework and the others have built on that framework. So uh, I'm proud to have uh, begun that accountability journey, including with you, one of the first people I talked to when I began the impeachment investigation. You know, just to give you a little additional uh, when it comes to the AG's case, uh, I've said it many times and I'll say it again. I even said it, uh, you know, when. Uh, <laughs> I, when I was questioned, uh, I think that the amount is going to far exceed $250 million based upon penalty interest and for just cause. The company doesn't have that kind of cash laying around. On top of that, there are, um, there are notes, there are debts that he has on the various different properties, including I read the other day that there's an issue now with his 30% stake in um, what is controlled by Vornado, that's 1290 Avenue, the America building, as well as the Bank of America building in San Francisco. Um, he has a 30% stake, but he took money out. And now, supposedly, the interest, uh, as a result of the rising interest rates, he was on a floating interest rate. Uh, it's going to cost him like another $50 million a year. And that doesn't get covered by you know, his 30% interest. But putting all this aside, what I think ends up happening is the banks, if they, did to, if they do to him what they did to me, they start shutting down all your accounts. And then they tell you, 
under the bad boy clause, you have to pay off your debt. Well, unless he's going to Mohammed bin Salman or, you know, or somebody like that, I don't see him being able to pay off the debt. I just, I just don't. At which point in time, yeah, uh, the bank you know, will force him into a chapter 11 and then those assets will get sold off. But here's your bigger problem. You know, what happens to all, for example, the golf courses? He has golf courses, for example, on his statement of financial condition worth $100 million, whatever the number might be, which is significantly overinflated. They're not worth that kind of dollars. And so let's say he paid $6 million and put another eight into it. So let, let's say hypothetically he's in for $15 million total. All right. That's not going to get him out of the trouble. And if you add all those assets up combined, it's not going to get even close to the 250. And here's the reason why. Because any profit that's going to be made above, say, that $15 million, Uncle Sam is going to be sitting there waiting to take their 50%, like what they did to me when I had to sell my real estate. So this is a real shit show for him and the Trump organization. And I'm just sitting on the sidelines with my bag of popcorn, waiting to see what's going to happen. But can I ask you this, Norm, because you brought up Fannie Willis. And I want to ask you this because you just wrote an opinion piece about, you know, Fannie Willis and the Georgia election fraud case. And you say that alleged misconduct by lawyers representing fake electors may be holding up imminent indictment in Georgia. But signs indicate cooperation by some electors that would benefit the prosecution. Can you do me a favor? Can you expound on that for my listeners? In filing the motion that I wrote about, we got the information that Bonnie Willis now has um, very likely has new cooperators against Trump. Let me explain the context. A month ago, Trump um, filed to disqualify Fonnie Willis, to disqualify the judge, even though he hasn't been charged yet. He has no legal basis to do that. It's called standing. The arguments are losers, but until he's charged, he has no right to appear before the court and make these claims. Nevertheless, um, the uh, battle had been joined. Fonnie Willis is not one to sit around when people are misbehaving. She filed a disqualification motion, I think a righteous one, saying that uh, the lawyer for the fake electors in Georgia had not communicated Willis's immunity offer to uh, the fake electors. That's a very serious thing, if it's true. And for that reason, and also because um, some of the fake electors had information about a crime that was committed by at least one of the other fake electors, this lawyer, Ms. Dubrow, could not represent them all. A lawyer is not allowed to represent multiple clients when they're testifying against each other. It's a conflict of interest, right? So Willis files this motion. I'm reading the motion. And in the motion, she says she has, how did she learn 
that her earlier offer of immunity, she wants to immunize them so they'll be cooperating witnesses. Some of these fake electors were tricked and fooled. The January 6th committee found that too. They didn't know that Trump was going to use this fake electoral certificate to try to overturn uh, the elections. Um, they, um, They thought it was just like an insurance policy in case he won his litigation. The uh, in, I'm reading the motion, and Willis says, uh, people didn't notice this so much. Willis says, I have now been having conversations with the fake electors, and I found this out. If she's having conversations with those fake electors, it's because they've gotten immunity or they're negotiating immunity. That's very important to the case, Michael, because once she has those cooperating witnesses, you know you're very important cooperating witness. But I never, but Norm, Norm, difference though, I got no immunity. Um, I got immunity when I testified before the grand jury by, by, um, by stat, you know, by right. Yeah, uh, but in New I York never signed State. A, I never signed a 5K1. I never signed yeah. a 5K1. I was not a cooperating witness. I was a witness who cooperated, but I was not a signed up cooperating witness, not for the SDNY, not for the New York AG, not for the uh, District Attorney of New York, not for Moeller. Mm-hmm. I was not a, I was not a 5K1. And I received no benefit, not a second of any minute, of any hour, of any day, of any year regarding my sentence. Zero. So she could be talking to these people without them being cooperating witnesses. It would be foolish on their behalf. And I consider myself to be foolish too. I just knew I didn't do shit. And so why should I sign up as a 5K1 witness when I didn't do anything? Other than, yes, well, look, I take take responsibility for what I did, the campaign finance violation, as well as the, you know, misrep, the state, the lie to Congress, the 1001 violation. But I really didn't believe that three versus 10 in terms of the number of times I spoke to Trump would would go anywhere but michael you know you, as know? you point out people don't realize this when you testify before the grand jury in new york you automatically get immunity so you did get immunity for for that you didn't insist on it elsewhere some witnesses don't some witnesses say you know let the chips fall um you didn't ask for when you when we spoke i came to new york to visit with you the first time at the beginning of the impeachment investigation you admitted to me the things you had done wrong. You didn't try to deny the campaign finance violations. You said, Norm, I did it. I did it. Um, so, um, and I admired that. And, you know, I went back, I told the people, this guy's a truth teller. I, 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 you know, from that very first meeting, I'm like, I felt I could trust you. And I have ever since. And you haven't wavered in that story. Um, so, um, you didn't, you know, I could have turned around and talked to a prosecutor. Of course I didn't, uh, as you know, I've, I've also tried to be in a, uh, uh, an advocate, um, for the truth of your account ever since I would do that, even if we hadn't met, cause I believe it's a truthful account, but you having met you when people say to me, Oh, Michael Cohen, he's not going to be a good witness on the stand. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they, they're so stupid. It. Everybody's got everybody's got an opinion. You know, my grandpa used he to say opinions us, are like opinions are like assholes. Like Everyone's is. got one. 
Yeah. Anyhow, coming back around to Fonnie Willis, um, I do think that those fake electors want immunity. She has, we know she has offered immunity. I believe she needs their cooperation to prove her case. And so, um, and so I, um, um, I, uh, unlike your situation, I think that either they have gotten or they will be getting immunity. But if it's true, now Dubrow denies it. I got to say, in fairness, she vehemently denies it. We'll get her motion in a few days uh, opposing her, her opposition brief, opposing the DA's request for relief. Um, and um, we'll see what the judge finds. But if she did not convey every detail of those immunity offers, she's that lawyer's in a lot of trouble. That would be a very serious violation. Okay, so Norm, nobody in my that I've met so far knows more about <laughs> the Georgia case, the Fannie Willis Georgia case, than you. All right, you're also familiar with the note that D.A. Willis wrote. And I believe that she wrote that note to uh, a local sheriff, a guy named Patrick Labatt. Do you believe that that note or letter strongly suggests that we will see criminal charges against Trump coming out of that office soon? Michael, the reason that I have learned so much about the Georgia case, and of course I have my big Brookings report and I've written a ton about it. I'm about to write seven more essays about it uh, for just security. We're going to do an essay a week, like we did in the run-up to the Manhattan Mm -hmm. prosecution, doing a deep dive on each of the issues. Is because I think that case is uh, uh, the clearest, and certainly will will be almost certainly will be the first accountability matter for the attempted coup of 2020. The uh, attempt by Trump to illegitimately overturn the election results. We've never seen that in American history before. A sitting president. Uh, staging a coup. Georgia was the cutting edge. So I made it my business uh, to learn about the case. Um, and, and then in terms of the meaning of the letter, by itself, the letter um, would not enable you to reach the conclusion Trump is going to be charged. But when you put it on top of all the evidence that was already public, the additional proof that the January 6th committee derived, Um, The indications in the special grand jury report partially redacted the things that the special grand jury foreperson, Emily, said. Uh, When you put all of that together, um, there's no question uh, Donald Trump is very likely to be charged. And this letter is still more proof why the letter says we need extreme security precautions. There's only one defendant that requires extreme security precautions. That's Donald Trump. So you don't need extreme security. You don't need extreme security precautions for Mark Meadows or, um, um, uh, you know, some of these Ken Cheeseboro. Come on. Who heard of Ken Cheeseboro? I mean, he's very responsible, in my view, for these bad acts. He designed, helped design the legal strategy with John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark. 
But nobody needs to set up barricades if John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark are going to be charged or Sidney Powell. You know, that that's an indicator coming on top of everything else that Trump is going to be charged at some point in July or August of I think uh, it's I, I think it's of, yeah, of I think year. it's uh I think it's um definitely uh this month or at the beginning of next month. That's what I believe, especially you know, I like not this language. month. She she ruled out this month. So it's yeah, next that's what, month. That's what she's yeah, but that's what I believe she could be saying because again, you know, her usage of language, significant public reaction. I mean, think about how she even drafted this. We have seen in recent years that some may go outside of public expressions of opinion that are protected by the First Amendment to engage in acts of violence that will endanger the safety of our community. As leaders, it is incumbent upon us to prepare. I believe that when she said, no way it's going to be in May, I have a funny feeling it's going to be in May, right? Solely for, for that reason, so as to keep people off balance so that they're not going. That's, listen, maybe I'm just a cynic. What the hell do I know? But I want to move on for a second. I'm going to ask you this. Jack Smith sat in on Mike Pence's interview last week. I mean, we understand that they exchanged a few words. It's rumored that Smith may just be about done with this investigation and ready as well to move on to indictments. What do you think? And I want to be clear. I'm talking about the January 6th. I'm not, talking, not talking about, about the Mar-a-Lago documents. Yeah. Right. Um, what do you think? I am not as clear, crystal clear, uh, about the likelihood of charges, and much less the timing from Jack Smith, as I am about the Georgia. Even in Georgia, I will say it is overwhelmingly likely, I won't say it's uh, 100% certainty, that Trump gets charged in July or August. It's overwhelmingly likely. Um, and I, I, I guess if you forced me, if you held a gun to my head and you forced me to guess, I would say, yes, there are going to be federal charges of Donald Trump for uh, the um, attempted coup. Um, let me uh, tell you the reasons that those... could be coming and coming soon. And then I'll explain the reasons against. Um, um, the reasons the reasons for um, are you've seen a series of witnesses go into the grand jury up to and including the vice president of the United States. Okay? You don't put the vice president former Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, in a grand jury, unless you're very seriously thinking about indicting the case. Um, and you don't put him in early in the case. He would be towards the end of your grand jury presentation as you're getting ready to charge. Um, uh, maybe at the very end. So that is the those are the uh, that's the reason that 
maybe we're, you know, we're getting towards the end. On the other hand, um, it's been publicly reported that there um, are a number of witnesses who are sought for that grand jury where there's still um, legal contestation going on. Um, it's not clear that all of that has been resolved. Um, and, uh, you know, there's going to be some time after you finish your grand jury work where you're going to think about what case should I bring? You're going to, um, you know, have to uh, think through the case. You got to look at the evidence. Uh, Jack Smith is, needs to tell the attorney general what he intends to do. Uh, under the special counsel regulations, um, you know, the attorney general does have, I don't think he will, he does have the power to disagree with him. So, um, uh, you know, we we may be nearing the end, we may not. For me, I think some of the charges, you know, are you going to charge Trump? Some of the charges of January 6th committee uh, recommended are more vanilla. They made referrals like 18 U.S.C. 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States uh, with these uh, bogus um, electoral states, 18 U.S.C. 15, electoral slates, 18 U.S.C. 1512, obstruction of an official proceeding in Congress by instigating the violence of January 6th, or just by putting those fake electoral slates in there and asking Pence to suspend the proceedings. Um, but the charges are, you know, will require a lot of thought. So I'm thinking out loud here. Um, you know, I'm guessing that if you force me to guess, I would say uh, Jack Smith is on a also on a summer fall timetable for these January 6th related charges. It's so amazing. I don't feel the same degree of clarity. I don't feel the same degree of clarity. Norm, they've already had a thousand people come in and testify. They have millions of pages of notes. I mean, this is, after a while, you could over, you know, you could over prepare for a case. You know, it's, they're making it, I think, more and more. I'm with you on the fact that once you bring in the former vice president of the United States. I mean, that should pretty much be the last guy that you need to ask questions of. But I, I want to move on and I want to ask you this. You think Ron DeSantis already lost his presidential bid? Because you earlier said that if Trump loses uh, in this civil case with E. Jean Carroll, that this is the kind of thing that I don't care you know, unless you're just one of that 26% maggot that doesn't care what Donald does, he could kill someone on Fifth Avenue, as he said, and get away with it. Women will not vote for him, nor should they at that point in time. So who's up? Well, then you got Ron Death Santis, right? Do you think that he's already lost his bit? I mean, he's fucked with the wrong mouse, right? And now I think it's going to be really tough for him to come back from that. Now, you've suggested that Disney will win their lawsuit against him. So let me ask you these two questions. Why do you think that? And do you think it'll be a monetary win for Disney? If so, how much? And where does he get the money from? Um, I do not think um, it will be a monetary win. 
but um, I do think it will be uh, a, a valuable win for Disney. Look, Michael, you always take your life in your hands when you predict the outcome uh, of uh, a case, right? Because courts are so unpredictable. But if any case is clear, it is clear under the First Amendment that Disney spoke out against the Don't Say Gay Bill. They said they disagreed and they would lawfully work to change it. DeSantis has been crystal clear, including in his book, that he determined to punish Disney based on protected First Amendment activity, that his actions to kick out the um, board of the Reedy Creek district where um, the Disney properties lie, to abrogate that board, to put in a new board of uh, those beholden to him, and then to pull various Disney contracts. That was done to punish them for exercising the First Amendment, as I wrote in my MSNBC op-ed. The First Amendment does not allow that. That That's one of the most fundamental uh, American ideas. Government cannot punish you for speaking your mind. Why? They, they put me, they remanded me back to prison for it. I mean, my case is on appeal right now. Yeah. They did that to me. Yes, and the judge where immediately... Are all, where are all of my... That's right. After 15 days of solitary confinement, it's yes. not as immediate as you think. You know, anybody yeah. that thinks 15 days is immediate, you know, put yourself into your bathroom for an hour and then, you know, tell me what you think. But they did it to me. Where are all my Democratic friends, right? Where are all, where are all the upstanding Republicans that turn around and say that the former administration should be held accountable? Do you know that I'm still waiting for one single document, not... I haven't gotten one fucking document from FOIA, and we're talking about almost three years now in, in terms of the request. Every 20 seconds, they're supposed to process another 500 documents. I've got nothing over the course of the last 10 months. Ted Lieu, Hakeem Jeffries, they were the first ones to ask for an investigation. You know what's happened so far? Ungats. Right? Yeah. Nothing. Then Congressman Cohen, Dan Goldman, you had Senator Dick Durbin, all of them, you know, turn, turning on Carolyn Maloney at the time, all of them asking for investigations. Nothing. Zero. What the fuck is our DOJ doing now? What's Merrick Garland sitting on now? I, you know, I try to reach out to this guy Clapper, you know, the chief of staff for, you know, for the office. You know, can't reach him either. I mean, it's, a, it's an absolute joke. Don't you want to show the former administration weaponized the Department of Justice to go against critics? Because, Norm, God forbid this wackadoodle ends up back in the White House. I, I promise you, you're on his enemies list, too. Everybody should be worried about it. Um, it's extremely it's extremely dangerous. I agree. Um, the world is on alert. Uh, they know what they're dealing with. That's where we started with the, you know, if he's uh, found liable in the sexual assault case, more disqualification. Um, I believe the um, the Republican primary voters uh, will think twice. And if they okay, don't. So, but my question. If he's but my got question such to you, Norm. A, Hold on. Let me finish my yep. sentence. If he's got such a grip on them that they don't think twice, then the general election voters will. DeSantis is the latest victim of his mauling. Um, 
And um, with DeSantis sinking like a stone, it's a very good question. Who comes behind DeSantis? Go ahead, Michael. That's that's actually the question I was going to ask you. <laughs> Who comes behind DeSantis, right? Because everybody else that's behind that or behind him, they're sort of more middle of the road. They're not this far-right extreme Trump MAGA world. Not that I can see. I don't see anybody, you know, following up next. But, you know, since we're talking about crazy cases, on top of everything, despite being unconstitutionally remanded, now on appeal, you know, before the, I, the Second Circuit, uh, you know, my, my question to you is, you may have seen that Trump sued me for $500 million for NDA violation, for defamation, for this, for that. And so on. What do you what do you see with that type of a case? What do you think is going to be the outcome of that type of a case? Um, well, I think uh, you know the other than costing me a ton you, of money. Well, Trump has had a series. Uh, Trump has had a series of uh, lawsuits um, uh, that. Uh, particularly lately, that have been thrown out as ridiculous. Uh, uh, You're right that um, I'm no uh, favorite of his. In fact, I think he, uh, I think in that lawsuit, uh, he, uh, although you're the main target, uh, he takes a swipe at me. In fact, uh, he takes a swipe at me for appearing on your podcast. Um, Not his first. Not his first. um, so that's a long list uh, of those uh, Trump does not uh, like. Um, I think that case is uh, going to be thrown out like the others. And, um, uh, you know, um, you have great lawyers, uh, Danya Perry, who uh, is a good friend of mine, who I work with all the time. There's no tougher, finer counsel you could have in that case. And, you know. Um, I think it is a meritless action. And couple Danya's skills with Ben Brodsky based down there in Miami. Uh, you know, the countersuit that's going yeah, to look, I, I'm looking forward to we follow our papers, um, you know, as this podcast is going, we'll be airing, we'll be filing our papers on the 8th, which is fantastic. But I want to jump back into who you are, Norm, as the former ethics czar, because ethics doesn't seem to be something that right now our Supreme Court uh, decides to abide by, because we've all heard about Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Roberts, none of them accounting for all their profits and for travel and trips and all that other stuff. But if they If they don't want to adopt any sort of code of ethics because they don't have one, what can be done? Um, Well, the Supreme Court is very badly broken, and ethics are the leading edge of it. (laughs) Um, Congress can pass a law establishing uh, ethics rules for them. Um, that's not going to happen because it's a partisan food fight. 
uh, and because of the uh, filibuster. Um, I think that that we need to look to uh, prosecutors to investigate uh, Justice Thomas's role. That is the most likely um, uh, source of uh, some um, response here to the terrible, terrible allegations, Michael, that we've um, learned about. Um, uh, you know, as you and I are speaking, a news story is breaking that this donor, Harlan Crow, paid tuition uh, for the uh, for the Thomas's uh, adopted uh, son. I mean, where does it end? Plus, news of additional luxury vacations. I mean, give me a break. You can't have and and Crow has very strong ideological interests in front of the court. He's an extreme conservative, wants to see the court go in a conservative direction. So these gifts to support a justice in that regard, there are interests before the court. And there's been a case involving a business uh, where uh, he has a minority and indirect interest, but still an interest also before the court that Thomas did not recuse himself from. I mean, it's such an outrageous. If this were any other court but the Supreme Court, um, the judge would be forced off the bench. But in the Supreme Court, Thomas decides his own discipline, Michael. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? That's like something out of the Middle Ages. It's like the right of a monarch. Uh, it's the opposite of the American idea of the rule of law, and especially for judges. It's insane. If this was any other court other than the Supreme Court, all three of them would have been let out in handcuffs. All right. This this to me is nothing. All shy three of, of bribery. All this three. is all three of the justices. No. Thomas Gorsuch and Roberts. If no, this no, was no, you a got lower no, court. No, 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 no. If you this was a lower court. You gotta distinguish between the Thomas case, which which is outrageous. The Gorsuch and the Roberts cases merit attention and inquiry. But the culpability is um, on Thomas's part. I, I, I think the the other two no. Wasn't there something? Are, no, no, no. Hold on, Norm. Wasn't there something with Gorsuch that also had to do with real estate? Yeah, but he's not. Thomas broke the rules. Thomas had a clear obligation to disclose. Gorsuch opinions differ. Many people think that Gorsuch was not required to disclose. He should have disclosed. Uh, the rules well, you're, the, should, you're the ethics czar. Should yeah. he have? Uh, it's the better position, but because the rules are murky, you're, you know, nobody's saying, oh, we need a criminal investigation of Gorsuch or Thomas. We do need a criminal, uh, of Gorsuch or uh, the Chief Justice Roberts. We do need a criminal investigation of Thomas because there was a repeated, outrageous, flagrant pattern of hiding information uh, uh, about an individual who has strong, strong ideological interests and was even related to a case at the court. So the Thomas thing is just so far over the top. And you know what? I think DOJ is going to open an investigation. It's well, that let bad. Let me say this. Let me say this. I bow to the ethics czar to Mr. <laughs> no. Uh, and if you say that they're not the same, I take your word for it. And um, if it was 
Thomas is a lower court judge, he would have been taken out in handcuffs. That's I'll stand I'll stand by that opinion. Now, I'll tell you one thing that really bothers me. We have right now Joe Biden in the White House. We already see that our Supreme Court is completely out of control. I don't understand why he just doesn't add an additional four Supreme Court justices. Just go ahead and do it. I hate to say that's what Trump would do. He would make an executive order. He's going to add, he's going to make it from nine to 13. And now you basically bring power and normalcy back. The first thing they should do is come up with an ethics code or something like that. But I want to ask you something more on point here. So let's say that Biden, sometime in 2023 or 2024, let's say before the election, Biden gets to make a new Supreme Court choice. Now, we already know what has happened in the past, right? Uh, you know, under, you know, when it was Obama. Is there any way that Republicans can block his choice like they did? under you know Obama with Merrick Garland. And boy, would I have preferred Merrick Garland to be a Supreme Court judge than the attorney general. Or is there no threat that McConnell is in the minority? What's your point on this? Well, I, I must tell you that, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, it's always complex uh, when you're dealing with uh, anything having to do with Mitch McConnell, Michael. Um, yeah. I, I uh, if I can, may I digress slightly? You may. <laughs> I, I have had my ups and downs over the years with Mitch McConnell. Uh, but when I was on the floor for the when I was on the floor for the um, for the uh, impeachment trial of Donald Trump, um, I sat ten feet away from him. The trial table was situated right by the where the minority leader, then Chuck Schumer, and the majority leader, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, sit across the aisle from each other. And I made it my business to go over and talk to him whenever I could, whenever there was not overdue it, but, you know, once a day, every couple of days, just to touch base. We know each other. Uh, he was actually very uh, supportive of uh, my uh, nomination uh, when I uh, was voted on by the Senate. I still pinch myself when I think about that, Michael. I could never make it through today. You know, they would play our podcasts uh, as part of opposing me. Uh, um, and and I, I, I barely made it through even back then, bec simply because some of the Republican extremists in the Senate wanted to make an example of me um, because of my friendship with President Obama. So, uh, uh, but Mitch McConnell, to his credit, he counted votes. And as senators approached, he made sure I had enough votes to make it through, Michael. And as senators approached, I was watching on C-SPAN. He was giving them a subtle signal. Thumbs up if they could vote for me. Thumbs down if not. He didn't, you know, he wanted to make sure I had enough votes. Ultimately, I think I got like a majority of the Republicans as well as all the Democrats. I got uh, 
I forget the exact count, over 70 votes. Um, so Norman, think- could they could they block um, Biden's Supreme Court nominee? I don't think they could. No, all of which all of which I'm coming to say um, McConnell was willing, was in the majority. So he had the power to block. I don't think he would do it uh, in the minority. He wouldn't have the power to do it. Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, now are uh, voted on by a majority. That rule was changed to get mm-hmm. some of the Trump justices through. Um, Gorsuch, um, he was a law school classmate of mine, by the way, Gorsuch. I know him well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm um, sorry to hear that. So look, Norm, the hour, as you always know, goes oh, by fast the when, hour two, when two friends... Yeah, when two friends are having fun. So I have one last question for you, and it's a hypothetical. And okay. I think about this sort of shit all the time, like at 2, 3, 4 in the morning because I have trouble sleeping. What if Trump is actually found guilty of one of the multiple crimes that he's being charged? And I'm not talking civil. I'm talking about criminal. Donald has said that he doesn't give a shit. He's going to even run for the presidency from prison if he has to. But if he's deemed a felon, then he won't be able to travel. And the list goes on and on without all sorts of restrictions. And, you know, it it would be a gigantic clusterfuck. Is there any way that you see Trump the felon becoming president? Do you think that this type of a hypothetical is even possible? Are we as Americans prepared to have a president instead of being in the Oval Office? Being in the visitation room? <laughs> well, <laughs> right next to the vending machines? Um, Selling I, fucking hot pockets? I think that um, I think that there will be a substantial constitutional battle about whether a sitting president um, can be lawfully incarcerated if we overcome hypothetically. If we overcome the notion that you and I talked about today, that the Republican primaries would choose somebody with this degree of legal peril, I don't think they will. That the um, general election voters will do it, I don't think they will. But hypothetically, since you asked, uh, there'll be a constitutional fight. I think that the better argument is, yes, a president can be incarcerated. And, you know, the Oval Office will, for the first time, have a cinder block wallpaper. Uh, And they'll set up an arrangement. They'll set up an arrangement uh, in the uh, facility. Um, Trump cannot pardon himself for the state crimes. He may try pardoning himself for the federal crimes, which is another reason that it's that the Georgia case is so important and Manhattan. So important. So central. Because Trump can't pardon his way out of those state violations. Um, And, uh, you know, I think he'll be forced to uh, do his presidential duties uh, from from penitentiary. Well, Norm, as always, my friend, it's good to see you. It's good to speak to you. It's good to get your perspective because nobody, nobody says it the way Norm Eisen does. That's all I got to say. Right back at you, man. Thanks for having me back. And uh, I'll uh, talk to you and all the listeners soon. Amen. 
And now for today's mea culpa. So many things are about money right now, or should I say greed. The real driver of our current inflation is corporate profit. Since the pandemic, so many big corporations like Big Oil and Big Pharma have made record profits. So why hasn't that trickled down? Well, because trickle down never worked and the money the government gave big corporations to stay afloat during the pandemic was used to buy up their own stocks. So now the Fed is raising interest rates again to try and stop a recession. But I think by continuing to raise interest rates, they are now encouraging a recession. So who suffers when rates are raised? Well, not the rich. The poor and the middle class suffer. The rich never. They never suffer because they don't pay taxes. And when we don't have money, we don't buy anything. Or worse, we live on credit. And then the economy stalls. Elizabeth Warren has told us this before, and we actually need to listen. Corporate price gouging is the driver of this recession. Every day, working people may be getting slight wage increases, but because of inflation, a raise is absolutely meaningless. I guess you could call it the circle of life, I mean, big fish eating little fish. But the big fish have caused a serious monopoly crisis in America, with a lack of competition across the board in sectors as diverse as phones, search engines, and airlines. I mean, how does anyone compete? Both Trump and Biden brought groundbreaking antitrust suits against Google, for instance, but little has changed. Greed is driving the bus and the poor are being asked to sit in the back. Or worse, just stand. And nowhere do we see corporate greed more clearly than in the current writer's strike in Hollywood. Which, surprise, surprise, is also about profits and what happens when profits become more important than the product. Now, most of us can attest to the fact that television over the last several years has been amazing, or peak TV as it's called. There's been a renaissance of great writing and studios willing to take risks in the cable space. But once these big entertainment companies figured out that streaming may not be as profitable as the old network model, well, then the jig was up. Network television pays for itself with advertisers, and once upon a time, a lot went into getting a network show on the air. Scripts were developed and pilots were shot, but only a few made it all the way to series. But in the process of developing those series, lots of people worked. And if your series was a hit, you worked for many years. Now the development has been sliced out of the equation. It's the stars that count, and the studios are willing to pay for them. But writers are expected to develop scripts on their own time and without compensation, in hopes that the studio buys them. Streaming and cable services have cut thousands of jobs as the profits dried up. And the same goes for the networks, which leaves writers with nowhere to go. The producers will always have the money and the artists will always have to perform to get that money. But the Hollywood system has hired MBAs to do the work of studio chiefs. And do you know what MBAs understand? They understand profit and franchises. I mean, the great little cable shows that everyone loved is the enemy of the producers. The bottom line is too small to justify its existence. 
But you know what needs to be bigger? Not just in Hollywood, but in all of corporate America vision. We don't need to go backwards. We don't need to revert back to the old way of turning a profit. We need to create a new way forward. A worldview where profits benefit not just the top execs, but everyone. I mean, just the big fish aren't the only one that need to eat. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>